Glad to see you here this morning. Probably take out these two rows, Joe, so we can feel a little closer to the people. Well, if you uh, have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of Second Peter. We are in Second Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 22 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and George will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Second Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 22 this morning. my message this morning is protecting the sheep. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together in your word. We thank you, Lord, for, for your word. Lord, because you've given to us through your word everything that we need for life and for godly living. Lord, you've given us warnings about the dangers that are in this world as well. Lord, that we can be aware of. And I know that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so, Father, we pray that you'd give us open ears to receive all that you have for us, that we gain not only information but application in our lives that would change us and draw us closer to you and our relationship with you. And, Father, I do pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning. Lord, would you especially touch their heart, help them to see their need for you, that they would turn to you and find that hope and forgiveness and grace that you offer to them. Bless our time together, we pray. Bless our kids downstairs as they're being ministered to by the teachers down, downstairs, Lord. And everything that we do, may you uh, be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read a story about a children's pastor who was giving a lesson on Psalm 23. And, and he was uh, giving the kids an illustration. And he, he's telling them about sheep. That they weren't smart and that sheep need to have a lot of guidance and, and uh, they needed to stay close to the shepherd. And the shepherd's job was to stay close to the sheep. He had to keep them from wandering off and doing dumb things that would, uh, you know, cause them to get hurt or even killed. He pointed to the little children in the room and, and said that they were the sheep and they, they needed the guidance. Then the minister puts his hands out, you know, to the side, palms up, in this big dramatic gesture and with raised eyebrows. And he says to the children, if you are the sheep, then who is the shepherd? Kind of shaking his head a little bit. And it's pretty obvious indicating himself. There was a silence that followed. And after a few seconds, this young visitor said, Jesus, Jesus is the shepherd. Well, the young minister, obviously caught by surprise, said to the young visitor, well, then who am I? Well, the visitor frowned thought thoughtfully, and then said with a shrug, I guess you must be the sheepdog. <laughs> I like that. You know, Pastors are often called under-shepherds, but the reality is we are more like sheepdogs. You know, sheepdogs, they have a lot of responsibility. They're to the round up the sheep to make sure they go in the right direction. They're to the round up the sheep to make sure they get to where the food and the water is. But they're also responsible for warning sheep of danger. And they'll bark and bark to, to scare off a predator. Well, this morning we're going to uh, hear from Pastor Pete, a great big gold sheepdog that was faithful to his flock, seeking to lead them in the right direction, making sure they are well fed with God's word and the living water of Jesus Christ. But also Peter was faithful to bark 
and bark and bark and warn against predators, against wolves in sheep clothing, against false teachers who would creep into the church. We've been looking at over the past few weeks. See, Peter's not only the sheepdog, but we also know that Paul, the Apostle Paul, warned us over and over again of the dangers of these false teachers. I think of Acts chapter 20 when Paul is leaving uh, Ephesus, the city there had been there for three years, and he says to the elders there in Acts 20, verse 29 through 31, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. In fact, you'll find throughout the whole New Testament warnings about these false teachers who are coming in, who are full of legalism and self-righteousness and, and pride and apathy and anger and jealousy. And we looked at last time in our study in Second Peter how judgment would come to them just as it did to the fallen angels, just as it did to the people who lived prior to the flood, just as it did to Sodom and Gomorrah. See, Peter was a, a, a true pastor in that he was very disturbed at the inroads that these false teachers were making into the churches. He knew that their approach was subtle, but their teachings were fatal. So he felt compelled to expose them and warn the churches about them. So this morning, we're going to close up the teaching of false teachers. Uh, if you're taking notes, we'll, we'll see four things. Number one, their, ret, uh, their reputation. Number two, their retribution. Number three, their revolting. And number four, their results. Now, if you recall, we finished with verse 9, with Peter telling us how the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. To those that know Him, to those that love Him, we're spared from that judgment. For to those that, that don't, the ungodly, He has reserved under punishment for the day of judgment. And then Peter gets specific with their reputation of these false teachers. Point number one. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So the first thing we read about these false teachers is they had a reputation and it wasn't a good one. It's like the man that had a job offer in Chicago, but he heard that living there might be a little bit dangerous. So he called a friend who lived there. And his friend said, yeah, Chicago has a bad reputation. But if you use some basic caution and common sense, it can be fun. A vibrant place to live. man said, great. By the way, what do you do for a living? He says, I'm a tail gunner on an ice cream truck. Some bad reputations are justified just as these false teachers had a bad reputation. What's the reason? Verse 10 tells us they walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness. They just live after their flesh. We know that the flesh refers to the depraved, unregenerate, sinful nature of man. Peter says that these false teachers live to fulfill their every fleshly desires. Paul put it this way in Romans seven eighteen. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. 
And then he said in Romans 8, verse 7 and 8, For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. As long as someone refuses to fully submit to God and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then they're not saved. And they're still controlled by their flesh, and they're controlled by their fleshly desires. And at that point, it is impossible to please God. The only fix is to completely surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But here we have a description of an unregenerate heart, a person who is still dead in the trespasses and sin, always hostile to God, Peter says. And then he tells us what this unregenerate heart is capable of. He says they have a reputation of despising authority in verse 10. Now, the authority that he's talking about is not political, it's spiritual. In other words, they despise even the thought of submission to Christ. They don't recognize any authority over them. I have to say, we're living in a society and in a culture filled with those who despise authority. We've tossed out male authority in the home, in the church. We've defied God's plan for the sexes and his definition of gender. We scoff at God's authority over sexual relations. We mock at God's authority over government. We turn a deaf ear to God's morality. We ignore God's order without realizing His will for our, our, our safety and betterment and negative consequences result when we disobey Him. But see, that's all the results of living in the flesh, despising authority. Peter goes on with their reputation. He says they are presumptuous and self-willed. In other words, they are motivated by the desire to live for themselves rather than living for the Lord. Not that they necessarily hate the Lord. They just happen to love themselves more. Favorite conversation is all about them. Everything they do, everything they say must be in some way result in profit to them. Have you ever spoken with someone that is all about them? You start to tell them something. Yeah, I woke up this morning and I woke up this morning too. And then... And they've got to have one better story than your story. Okay, that, that's fine. But everything they say comes back to, to me, 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 what, what I've seen, me, me. It's the absolute opposite of what we're called to do as Christians. See, one who's truly been born again should be dead to self and alive to Christ. More interested in what the other person has to say rather than, than what I have to say. See, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But the truth is, we don't like to deny ourselves because we're living in a world today that is very self-centered, very self-focused. Everything we do is for self. Not only the age of self, but the age of the selfie, right? Last month, my wife and I, we were at uh, Clearwater Beach, Florida. We sat on the pier for about an hour, an hour and a half, and and everywhere you looked on the pier, people were stopping, and they're all taking the selfies. You know how many people you can get in one selfie? All these things, just taking pictures of themselves. I want to take a wild guess how many selfies are taken every day? According to, to one resource, 92 million selfies are taken every day in the world. 92 million. Over 50 percent of millennials have published a selfie at least once. Over 95 percent of young adults have taken a selfie. Individuals spend 54 hours a year or seven minutes a day taking selfies. An average selfie taker is 24 years old. And women take 1.5 times more selfies than men, which leads to the fact that men are more than twice as likely to die in the pursuit of a selfie than women. 
2017 was the worst year for deadly selfies, where at least 107 deaths reported. So there's more people that die from taking selfies from those who die in a shark attack. Why do we do it? Because it's all about me. And we see this today, you know, so often, even in the church, it's all about me. People go to church so they can be entertained. Or so they can listen to a message that they can tell them just how great they are or how they should be having their best life now. Listen, my best life is not going to be now. My best life is going to be when I'm in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. But you have these teachers telling people what they, they want to hear. They don't want to hear deny yourself. They don't want to hear that we're sinners. They'd rather hear indulge yourself. Given to whatever fleshly appetite you have, it's God's will for you to be happy. No. It's God's will for you to be holy. And then only then can we be truly happy. Because there can be no peace, there can be no happiness, there can be no joy to those living a self-willed life. Until you submit fully to Christ, you'll never know real and lasting satisfaction. So Peter says concerning the reputation of these false teachers... Look at verse 10 and 11. They are presumptuous, self-willed, not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. That phrase, to speak evil of dignitaries, it's a reference to demonic dignitaries. Now there is a cross-reference to this passage in the book of Jude, in verse 8 and 9 that says, For even Mark of the archangel dared not bring a reviling accusation against Satan when he disputed with him over the body of Moses, but rather said, The Lord rebuke you. So when Peter and Jude, or what Peter and Jude are saying is that these teachers who were among the people, they're so arrogant, so prideful, that they did something that Michael the archangel wouldn't even do, and that is that they would mock these fallen angels Still dignitaries nonetheless. And even today in these circles of false teachers, you hear them mocking, you know, uh, rebuking Satan. Here's a brief clip from a false teacher, Kenneth Copeland, doing exactly what Peter and Jude says these false teachers are doing. Take a look. Notice how he starts the whole thing. He, he says, he's standing in the office of a prophet of God, and then he proceeds to converse with the devil. He says, I rebuke you, I, 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 I. I mean, he's having this conversation. Think about that. Jude says, even Michael the archangel dared not bring a reviling accusation against Satan, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. Certainly not that guy, I, I mean, or other false teachers. Listen, when you have trouble with the devil in your life, and we all do, don't go toe-to-toe. Don't go one-on-one with the devil. When Satan comes a-knocking, let the Lord answer the door. 
And we need to do what Michael did and put the Lord between us and the enemy. The Lord rebuke you. Not me. I'm no match. Well, Peter continues with his false teacher's reputation. Look at verse 12. He says, These are like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. They speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. So Peter next compares them to wild, vicious animals meant to be destroyed. Don't mess with Peter. I mean, he's just telling it like it is. Just barking, you know, watch out for these guys. You know, when I think of an animal that is made to be caught and destroyed, it's usually an animal that, that has rabies that, that comes to mind. An animal where there's no hope in saving for them. They're so far gone. And that's what Peter's saying here. These false teachers are so far gone, they don't even know they're as far gone as they are. Again, verse 12, they speak evil of things they do not understand, and they will utterly perish in their own corruption. They, they speak these impressive words about things having nothing to do with, with, with life and salvation. And they're really just ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about, Peter says. So that's point number one, their reputation. This brings us to point number two, their retribution. The word retribution means punishment, something done or given to somebody as punishment for, or vengeance for something he or she has done. Look at verse 13. He says, the retribution will be they will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Their spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Over and over again, woven through the entire text is the fact that these false teachers have a judgment day that's coming to them and it's going to be severe. Now understand, false teachers must face judgment, not because they are false teachers, but because they've rejected Jesus Christ. When Peter here speaks of the wages of unrighteousness, it's the same as what Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. doesn't matter what the sin is. Sin is sin. The penalty for sin is for everyone. Sin means missing the mark. We've all sinned. We've all missed God's mark of perfection. We've broken His laws. And unless we come to faith in Christ in repentance, we will have to pay the penalty for our sins. There will be retribution. The good news for us is that God has made a way out. Jesus already paid the price for our sin. Paul goes on to say in Romans 6 that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We just needed to repent and put our faith and trust in Him. But for the unrepentant sinner... Though the body dies and returns to dust, the soul will immediately go to hell because of the refusal to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet Peter's talked over again about and over again about reward for the faithful believer. Paul talks about the gift of God being eternal life, but there is a reward for the unrighteous. There's a wage. There's a there's a, a due date. God tells us in Isaiah three eleven. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given to him. What's that reward? Psalm 9, verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. You know, there was a day when we were bombarded by a one-sided view of God as an angry God, ready to throw people into the open fires of hell. And you would often hear the criticism, there's too much hell, fire, and brimstone preaching today. The problem today, though, is it's gone too far in the other direction where there's no longer any hellfire and brimstone preaching. 
Today's preaching is all about loving this benign supreme being that doesn't seem to have any opinions on the way that we live at all. As long as we're true to ourselves, it's okay with him. He accepts us just the way we are. Listen, you can follow that God as much as you want, but that's not the God of the Bible. Yes, the God of the Bible does love us and accepts us as we are, but the God of the Bible also wants to change us. He wants to conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. I like what Pastor Greg Laurie said. He said this quote, Many people may, turn, may study the sermon of Jonathan Edwards as great literature that was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But the bottom line is Edwards would not be allowed to preach it in many churches today. If he did, he would have to update it from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God to people with low self-esteem from dysfunctional families in the hands of an all-caring, non-judgmental supreme being. Listen, we preach about hell because Jesus did. I've heard people say, what's so bad about hell? When I get there, all my buddies will be there. We'll party. Let me assure you, if you really knew what hell was like, you would repent of your sin in seconds. See, the Bible teaches that, that, that hell is not only a place of torment, but it's a place of eternal torment. Jesus, in speaking of the death of the wicked, said this in Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Then he will say also to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Everlasting fire. Matthew twenty five forty six. he says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Everlasting fire. Everlasting punishment. See, if the sinner, unforgiven sinner, just died and ceased to exist, as some cults teach, that would be bad enough. Because they missed out on the glory of God in heaven. But hell is so much more than just ceasing to exist. The Bible teaches that hell is a place where you'll be in torment for eternity because of your sins. Now there are those who say, well, I don't believe a, a God of love will send his children to hell. You're absolutely right. God never prepared hell for his children. In fact, as we read, Jesus said hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Men and women are in hell by choice. Either because they do not know the truth, therefore therefore they're responsible for sending themselves there. Yeah, God does the sending, but it's because they've done the rejecting of the offer of forgiveness. Now we're going to read in our next study, chapter 3, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. That's why God gave His very best, His only begotten Son, who left the glory of heaven to come to the shame of this earth, to die on the cross, so that He might save you and I from hell. Again, hell was never prepared for you or for me. Heaven was. In fact, Jesus even said it. He put it this way. In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you so. I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, that's the good news. But then the choice becomes yours. If you're a child of God, then you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've repented of your sin and now you rely on, you cling to, you trust in Him. That means you're on your way to heaven. If you're not a child of God, it doesn't make any difference if you're a good man, if you're a moral man, a conservative, a liberal, you're still destined for hell unless, unless you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So, these false teachers, number one, they had their reputation. Number two, they'll get their retribution. 
This brings us to our third point, number three, they're revolting. Look again at verse 13. Peter says they will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Carousing in the daytime speaks of not having any shame at all for the way they live. You see, it's one thing to sin privately in the dark, ashamed of what you're doing. It's another thing just to sin openly and publicly with not a hint of a guilty conscience. Peter goes on in verse 14, they're revolting because they have eyes full of adultery. They cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices, and they are accursed children. The phrase, eyes full of adultery, speaking of spiritual sense more than the physical sense. And then Peter says they entice unstable souls, verse 14. That means they go after those who are weak in the faith. They go after new believers. The word entice means to lure with bait. A picture of a fisherman around the lake casting one lure after another, trying to entice a fish to take that lure, to take that bait. You know, even though those lures are fake, they look so much like the real thing to hungry fish, and they're, you know, they're apt to, to bite it and get hooked. It's a lure that looks like truth. It's all shiny. Looks like it tastes good. But those that don't know their Bibles, what God's Word said, they get hooked. And it's just like, like fishing with a lure. It's, it's promising that fish something good. And you have those people who are trying to rip off people all their money at the same time, promise them something good. That's why Peter says again in verse 14, they have hearts trained in covetousness. They're experts at greed. One definition of hearts trained in covetousness is that they have perfected the technique of getting what they want. This goes all the way back to Martin Luther and the unbiblical heretical practice in the Roman Catholic Church called indulgences. An indulgence was a payment to the Roman Church that purchased an exemption from punishment for certain types of sins. If you're a Roman Catholic, the indulgences were for those who were afraid that one of their sins might have gone unconfessed, and if they died, they would end up in hell for failing to repent. So in other words, in order to make money, they were saying that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough to pay for your sins. You had to cough up more, otherwise you'll have to suffer after your sins were paid for, until your sins were paid for. This sale of indulgences was a byproduct of the Crusades in the 12th and 13th centuries. In other words, indulgences function like confession insurance against eternal damnation because if you purchase an indulgence, then you wouldn't go to hell if you died suddenly and forgot to confess something. But alas, that wasn't making enough money. So years later, the sale of indulgences spread to include forgiveness for the sins of people who were already dead. So if you had a loved one that had died and you didn't know if they confessed all their sin or not, then you could pay up and get help getting them out of this made-up place called purgatory, place of suffering like the flames of hell, until you paid for all their sins. Now you may think, you're nuts. They don't really think that. In fact, there's a passage from a sermon by John Tetzel, a monk who sold indulgences in Germany in the 1500s, which actually inspired Martin Luther's protest in 1517. And here's what he said in this sermon. Don't you hear the voices of your dead parents and other relatives crying out, Have mercy on us, for we suffer great punishment and pain. From this you could release us with a few alms, 
We have created you, fed you, cared for you, and left you our temporal goods. Why do you treat us so cruelly and leave us to suffer in the flames when it takes only a little to save us? End quote. <laughs> Crazy. They needed to study Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 that says this. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. How many sins did he forgive? All of our sins. All of them. There's no leftover sins we have to atone for in some made-up place called purgatory. Jesus paid it all. But it was a way, a subtle way, to entice unstable souls to give up their money so they created this doctrine, really a doctrine of greed. And Peter says these false teachers of his day, they entice unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. They may say, well, you know, that's why I'm not a Roman Catholic. <laughs> Listen, it's not just in Catholicism. We have it in the prosperity teachers today. Same thing. They will bait and entice and lure unstable souls into thinking that if you just have enough faith, give enough money, then you'll be wealthy. Put your money out there. They, they, they dangle that lure of prosperity. If you just have enough faith, give a little more money, you'll be healed. They'll dangle that lure, lure of healing. And the unstable soul swims in that pond until they're hooked and they're trapped. That's why for us as believers it's important that, that we are stable, that we are grounded in the Word of God. That we, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.14, should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The word that Paul uses there for trickery is the word that speaks of manipulation, sleight of hand. Same thing Peter is saying with that word enticing. To trick someone to believe something that's not true. That's just how Satan works. Through the sleight of hand, through trickery, through enticing. That's why, again, we must be very, very careful to know the Word of God, to always run whatever we hear by whatever teacher it is through the lens of Scripture. Does this back up with Scripture? Be Bereans. Because these false, these false teachers, rather, they're, they're cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, Peter says. They're, they're cunning. They, they, they lie in wait. Let me say this before we go on. Knowing that there are false teachers out there, we as a church should not turn into reactionary Christians. There are some people that react automatically to everything as if there's just a false prophet waiting around the corner. Now, I happen to believe that's true. But it can cause a person to become almost so narrow-minded as if they're the only arbiter of, of truth at every sermon, every book, every article. You know, everything has got something bad in it. And, and I heard one pastor call it, you can be a gospel Gestapo. We need to be discerning. Don't get me wrong. We need to distinguish, distinguish between truth and error. In fact, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5, test all things and hold fast to what is good. But we don't want to uh, prevent ourselves from hearing what is good because we're always looking at, okay, was, was that right? No, that, I don't know about that. I don't know about it. We need to listen to what is good. Be discerning is a great uh, word for that. But with that said, Peter still says, watch out. Because there are false teachers and they're cunning, they're crafty, they're deceitful, and they lie in wait. And it really all comes down to greed. They're in it for the money. And that's why Peter gives us this next illustration in verse 15. He says concerning these greedy, self-willed false teachers, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, 
who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So Peter says, they've gone the way of Balaam. What does it mean to be following the way of Balaam? Numbers chapter 22 has this story. But to summarize, Balak was the king of the Moabites and he was afraid of Israel. He wanted Balaam, the prophet, to prophesy God's wrath against Israel. Now, Balaam's sin was that he wanted to go along with King Balak's plan to prophesy against Israel as long as the price was right. Three times Balaam sought God in order to prophesy against Israel. And all three times uh, uh, he had to keep telling Balak that God said no. He wasn't going to pour out his wrath upon Israel. But you know, Balaam's greed kicked in. And Balaam says this in Numbers 22.18. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. He's naming his price. So on his way to do this, God stopped him by putting a roadblock in front of his donkey. Balaam, not wanting to stop, hits the donkey three times trying to get him moving again. And then suddenly God opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey speaks. In fact, it says in Numbers 22, 28, the donkey says, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey in which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. Now here's what's amazing to me. Not that the donkey spoke, but Balaam was not surprised with the talking donkey, and he responds right to it. Is it something you do all the time? So you have a dumb donkey speaking to an even dumber prophet. You have dumb and dumber right there. I mean, the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and, and sees that there was an angel of the Lord stopping the donkey, and he had not stopped, had he not stopped, you know, stopped it, Balaam would have died. And even though Balaam didn't curse the Jews, he gave Balak instructions on how he could get God to curse them. He told them to send the the woman into the camp to marry them, to uh, intermarry, and they'd get them involved in the pagan activities and the sexual immorality, and then God would take care of the rest. And God did. But Balaam the prophet thought he could do as he pleased to make a prophet for himself, but in the end, it cost him his life. And the point Peter's making is these false teachers do the same thing. It's all for money. It all comes back down to greed. That's the doctrine of Balaam. So we see uh, these false teachers. Number one, their reputation. Number two, their retribution. Number three, their revolting. And finally, number four, the results. Look at verse 17. He says, These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, Peter's point is simple. The words, the teachings of these false teachers, posing as pastors, offering living water, They're empty. There's nothing to offer. Their teachings are not refreshing. There's no spiritual nourishment you you can glean from them. There's no life to them, but only blackness. And yet, tragically, people are drawn to them. It says, The Lord said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2, verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a contrast to what Jesus said about himself in John seven thirty seven and 38. If anyone 
thirst. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, here's my point. In each person there is an inborn thirst for God. God has made us for himself and our hearts will be dry and empty until we find our true fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But along the way, people will try to, to fill that emptiness, to satisfy that emptiness and thirst in many ways by living off of substitutes. But only Jesus Christ can bring that inner peace and satisfaction. That's why Jesus also said in John 4, 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In other words, you may drink repeatedly at the broken cisterns of this world, but you'll never find satisfaction. Or you may take one drink of the living water through faith in Jesus Christ, and you'll be satisfied forever. False teachers could not make that kind of offer because they had nothing to offer. They could promise, but it wouldn't produce. And since these false teachers really have nothing to give, how then are they able to attract followers? Well, the answer is found, verse 18 and 19. Look at those verses. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty... They themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Isn't that what we're seeing in some churches today? Pastors trying today trying to, to minister to people's flesh, making them feel good about living in sin and, 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 and the sinful lifestyle they've chosen to live in. Now maybe as a child they, they gave their life to, to the Lord, but later on they found themselves caught up in sin. And now they're looking for pastors who will tell them their sin is okay. It's all right that you're caught up in this sin. God loves everyone just the way they are. And they use these big, fancy, flashy words like tolerance and acceptance and love. But in the end, they're empty words because only God's Word can bring forth life in us. Yeah, they may say that they're giving you liberty, freedom, but that's never found in the flesh. Only Jesus can set us free from the bondage of sin. And if you don't seek Jesus, if He's not your Lord, if He's not your Savior, then you will be a slave of corruption. You will remain in that bondage to sin. That's what Peter's saying. Finally, Peter says to these false teachers, look at verses 20 through 22. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. In other words, this goes right back to judgment. It's going to be bad for them. Why? Well, Peter says these guys, they made a, a public profession of faith. They claimed to know the Lord. They knew the way of righteousness, but they turned from it, verse 21 says. They willfully, they deliberately returned to their former way of living while still professing to know the Lord. That's why they're worse off. They were not ignorant of the gospel. They were willfully, deliberately disobedient to it. Listen again to Peter's final description of them in verse 22. But it happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returned to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Isn't that a lovely picture? 
I should mention that dogs at that time were not cute little cuddly pets, not man's best friend. They were wild scavengers. You know, the dog vomits. He's rid of something that polluted him. Instead of leaving it and finding good food, what does he do? He eats it again. It happens. Now, I know the Bible is true for many reasons, but I can tell you this verse is particularly true because I have personally witnessed it through my daughter's dog, Bentley. Very gross. I mean, walks up, you see it, you know, and there's on the carpet. Starts to walk away and turns around. Oh, come on, dog. Peter also brings up a sow or a pig. Now, I remember a time not too long ago when pigs were a pet. Remember that? The Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs. A lot of people went out and bought these things. I'd look at them and go, they are so ugly. They really had a pot belly and they were kind of this hairy, it was pretty ugly. But you know, you, you could take a pig and you can wash it all up. You can put some nice cologne on him and make him a little outfit to wear, maybe a little pig tuxedo. Put a little hat on him and you can sit him down at your table and have a nice meal together. Isn't this nice with this pig? Hey, pass the sausage. But then, <laughs> let me tell you, the first chance that pig gets He's going to make a beeline from your dining room table back to the slot because that's where he really wants to be. Why? Because he's a pig. He wants to hang out with his pig friends. wants to do pig things. This is what these false teachers are all like. They, they like to hang out together. They like to, you know, party. They, they, you know, they say these all, you know, and you see it. I've seen it on, on TV. They get three or four of these false teachers up there and they're, they're patting each other on the back. They're just in the swamp. This pig's dying. You know, they, they made a profession of faith in Jesus, vomiting out their sins, asking forgiveness, but they return right back to the vomit, right back to the mud, right back to their sins. Maybe for a time they seemed to walk in obedience, but they returned to their former practices. They had no, really, no real change of heart. And sadly, as much as they would want you to believe that their life was in control, they're just deceiving themselves. They have no peace, no joy, no relationship with Jesus Christ. They're just out of control, spinning radically towards eternity and hell. Folks, make no mistake about this. These teachers and their doctrines are deadly. And people today, sadly, are flocking to these places like a moth to a light. Why? Because deep inside, people, they want to feel good about themselves. And they'll tell you, well, I go to such and such church because it makes me feel better. They tell me I'm okay, I'm good, and that makes me feel better. See, they, they, they want an outward reformation without an inward transformation. Peter is saying outer reformation without inward transformation will lead to spiritual incarceration, bondage, slavery. Yeah, the false teachers promise freedom, but you'll end up in worse bondage. So the question really comes down to, as we close, is are you really saved? Has there been an inward transformation? Peter put it this way in Acts 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So the question is, has there been true repentance in your life? A true inner transformation? Or has it only been just an outward reformation? Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not saved, but you want the blessings of the contentment, the joy that God has promised from His Word, then come to Christ today. Put your faith and trust in Him. Repent of your sin. Allow Him to do the work in your life. And He will. 
If that's your desire today, I want to give you that opportunity. As soon as service is over, please come up and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible, let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, let me encourage you today. Stay in God's Word. Hold fast. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. To quote Star Wars, stay on target. Stay on target. You know that scene. Stay on the straight and narrow. Don't get turned aside. Stay in God's Word. And take the time, and this is what I want to encourage you, take the time to engage with those that are caught up in churches that are led by these false teachers. Do what you can to help free them from the bondage they put themselves into by listening to these men and some of these women. Don't hold back. Don't be silent. Listen, the Lord is returning soon, despite of what skeptics say. As a matter of fact, Peter will be addressing that very topic in our next study together in chapter 3, and we'll get to that. With that, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, help us as your church, to be Bereans, to take everything that, that we hear, Lord, and, and compare that to what your word says. Is it true? Is it something you've said? Is it something that, that, that aligns with your word? Lord, if not, help us to reject it. Help us to stand against those things that are, are false. But Lord, help us to take in what is true and allow your word to change our lives and to mold our lives and have that inner transformation, Lord, not just an outward reformation. Help us, Lord, to to walk in your spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Lord, the the, the selfish life that's out there, you know, it's it's everywhere that we see. Just fulfill self, Lord. Help us to deny ourselves. Take up the cross and follow, follow you, Lord. Lord, we can't do that in our own strength. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask for an infilling of your spirit even right now, Lord. This coming week, we may have trials and situations that you're going to put us in. Maybe people to talk to that are caught up in in false teaching. Lord, we ask for that special anointing of your Holy Spirit to speak your truth out, to share with those that are lost. Lord, to, to live for you in this fallen world. Give us those opportunities, Lord, to bring people to yourself, to lead people to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.